Hi, I'm Josh Powell. I'm the CEO of Development Gateway and IREX Venture. I've been with DG for about 12 years and I'm based in Washington, DC. And I'm Vanessa Goaz, COO of DG. I've been with DG for about 15 years and I'm based in Miami, Florida. This is Data for What, the new Development Gateway podcast. We have several seasons on different topics in production, but in our first season, we are gonna talk about our new strategic plan, how it fits with our past work, the thought process behind it, and where we hope to go in the next few years. In this episode, we talked to Fernando Ferreira and Annie Kilroy about digital transformation and emerging technologies. Yeah, it was really a great conversation. And, you know, the reason why we wanted to talk to Annie and Fernando, Fernando is our director of software development. He's worked with DG for well over a decade in building technology, deploying it directly with governments and civil society globally, and, and really kind of delivering at a very pragmatic level digital transformation, uh, as well as testing out new technologies. And Annie has done a lot of work around digital and data governance, around understanding and measuring digital transformation, and a lot of our applied research work. And so I think they both brought really great and unique perspectives to the conversation. So historically, DG used to talk a lot about digital technologies. We made a bit of a pivot towards data for decision-making in more recent years. And now this new strategy kind of goes a little bit back to the question of digital. Can you tell us a little bit more about why we're making that shift? Yeah, I mean, I think when you pulled the the mask off, it was always digital all along. You know, all the work that we've done has been about deploying digital technology to support data collection, data interoperability, data analysis, visualization, and and all in the service of using technology to help support better decision-making and better development outcomes. The vernacular, the zeitgeist has evolved over time, particularly with the data revolution report in 2015. You know, there's a lot of framing and focus on the data component. Over the more recent years, I think what's become clear, and particularly throughout the pandemic, is that all of those processes around data, as well as around citizen engagement, you know, civic participation and so forth, they all require a level of digital transformation and digital equity, and also increasingly digital rights and and kind of digital governance that really weren't being met by the development sector, by governments, by certainly by the private sector as well. And so I think certainly the the pendulum or the focus has swung back a little bit toward digital. And for us, it's a little bit of change, but it's a lot of continuity. The main difference is that, you know, I think we're being very intentional in this strategy about leaning forward into some of the new and emerging technologies testing them out with an eye on governance, with an eye on ethics, and with an eye on appropriate technology, which for a while was was really the buzzword that you heard in the ICT4D space was around appropriate technology. That's kind of gone away. I think we're going to start to see that coming back as some new and exciting or buzzworthy technologies inevitably run into their challenges and limitations. I think you'll start to see people talking more and more about appropriate tech again. I think it's been interesting over the course of our careers in this sector, seeing how data and digital was a bit of a niche topic, kind of had to force your way into the room and explain why it was important to becoming almost expected and a bit more mainstream. How are we setting ourselves aside and making sure that we're being a little bit different in this space so that we continue to bring value? Yeah, I think that's definitely right. We're at the first time in my career where I think demand is kind of far outstripping supply in terms of expertise in in the digital space. And so there's a lot of opportunity for growth, not just for DG, but for a lot of partners. 
I think what's unique about our approach and our offerings is a few things. One is that our team are half software engineers and half development practitioners. You know, we really bring that hard engineering skill set to all of the work that we do as opposed to outsourcing or just having maybe one or two developers or technologists on staff. And so our thinking is really heavily driven by our software team very often, and particularly in the strategy cycle, I think. I think the other thing is, is really a close understanding of governments, of civil society, and of the context that we work in so that we can really tune the use of digital technology, of data, to specific problems that people have in their day-to-day life, in their work, in their decision-making processes. I think that's often lacking. There's still a very heavy tools-first focus within the development space. And I think as you see digital mainstreamed into more and more sectors, you have folks getting excited about digital maybe for the first time, and so there's this natural inclination to kind of repeat the mistakes of the past of, I have a tool, this tool can do X, I must deploy this tool, and I think, being able to come in as a trusted thought partner to be able to really ensure that the approaches that are being designed, the tools that are being deployed are really fit for purpose, are sustainable, and also ensure the the rights and the protection of information of particularly marginalized and vulnerable communities. What was most interesting in your conversation with Annie and Fernando? I think what stood out to me in this conversation is, is that the first half of it in particular, there was an inordinate focus, and I think rightfully so, on risk identification and mitigation. You know, we're obviously, we're a technology organization, we're strong believers in the role of technology, but I think we also have a very weighty understanding of the responsibility that comes with deploying technology, particularly technology that is either designed to allocate resources that influence people's lives or that even more directly touches their lives through service delivery and access to those resources. And so that was was obviously, you know, something that, that our team spends a lot of their time thinking about, that kind of first do no harm principle. And then from there, thinking through what are the exciting things that we can do that match with our ethics, that match with our value and our mission. And there's always a lot to be done, but I think doing it really thoughtfully and carefully is always critical to the way that we work. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing about the way that we work and also what we look for in partners, right? We're not just looking for any particular opportunity to go implement any new shiny thing that we want. We really are always thinking about the people behind behind the tools that we build. Who are going to be the users? Who are going to be the ultimate people benefiting from the use of this data? And I think what, what you brought up about do no harm it's so important and it's something that I think gets thrown around in our space almost not seriously sometimes. For us, it's always sort of at the forefront of what we're doing and I think sometimes it means that we don't go after what we perceive to be a little bit riskier even though it might be a bit of a sexier new thing for us. So I I do think that's a really important thing. I'm very glad that you guys had a chance to talk about that. Let's turn to the conversation with Annie and Fernando. I'm here with Annie and Fernando today. Annie, do you want to go first? I'm Annie. I'm a senior associate. I've been with Development Gateway for about five years now. My background's in data analysis and and policy analysis, so I support a lot of uh, initiatives at DG on data use and data use advisory. I'm Fernando Ferreira, the director of software development. I lead the team that takes care of developing our 
software solutions and we've been doing it for many, many years and we have a focus on delivering these high quality, sustainable products with an emphasis on open source. Annie, we'll start with you. What is digital transformation and how do you see Development Gateway's approach to digital transformation changing in recent years? I think that's an interesting question. I think digital transformation is, it's kind of hard to define. It's a catch-all for just bringing things to the digital world, whether that's a process or kind of service or, or anything like that. It's recently, I think, taken on a new connotation in the development context in terms of bringing government institutions online, especially those in the developing world. And also it touches on in the development world systems of tools and technology that is used to advance development. So for us, I don't actually think that it's super different than anything that we've always been doing at DG. We've always been a technology provider, so kind of implementing digital transformation at that smaller scale, you know, one system at a time. I think we started with the aid management platform. That's an example of just one system at a time. But I think as we matured as an organization, we started realizing that there's a lot more than just a digital tool that needs to happen in order to actually reap the benefits of any sort of digital transformation initiative. These are, you know, policies, data sharing, interoperability, governance, you know, all these digital tools need to relate to one another and, and work with one another. So I think at, at DG, it's really not all that different from what we've already done in the past. We've always provided advisory support on a policy level and governance. We've also been doing a lot of applied research and kind of best practices related to data sharing and interoperability and all these things that digital transformation as kind of an umbrella term encompasses. So I really don't think it's much different from anything that DG has already done other than maybe taking it to a higher level and, and also just giving it a name. Perfect. Thanks. And Fernando, how have you seen DG's approach change over the years, and what do you see as the role of, of digital innovation and emerging technologies in this new strategy? Digital transformation, like Annie described, it's a broad term, has to come hand in hand with innovation. Now, with innovation comes a lot of noise, and we, we need to be able to get the signal from there. The way we we try to, to do this is by fostering a culture of experimentation where we can find the interesting solutions to the common problems that we have. Solutions are always evolving and I think that we are at the beginning of the digital transformation. We are in a very initial stage that we'll have to be very careful about how we can really extract the value. The promise of digital transformation is to get more value for all of our efforts. Now, well, we, we need to be smart about how we invest there, how we look at these new technologies that are sometimes so disruptive, and we need to see what the value is there. So you talked about experimentation, you talked about disruption, but I think with both of those words comes a third word, which is responsibility. How do we think about how to do these things kind of ethically and systematically in a way that we can make sure that as we experiment with tools that ideally should be improving lives, that they do that without creating new risks or new exposures? Yeah, I think that from the, from the start, since I started working at DG for 14 years, it was always about sustainability. And that sustainability is a, is a pillar, but it's also, it has changed what that sustainability means over the years. 
how, how we can be careful about this, there are many things that work towards sustainability. There, there's always um, a temptation to use some more commercial solutions or things that have recurring licenses. And that we've seen in the past that it's not that we can't use them, it's just that this has to be part of the plan or part of the conversation on how a product is gonna evolve way after we finished the project. We, we take very serious the responsibility when we are doing technology selection or suggesting architectures for our solutions. Sometimes it's not the cutting edge, it's not the most innovative uh, solution, but we strive to get the most sustainable one. And it has worked very well for us in the past. Thanks. And to build on that, Fernando, as, as we look at engaging more with emerging technologies and tools, things that are a little bit more nascent or experimental, what are some of the things that you're thinking about in terms of how we engage with some of these new tools in new ways? First of all, in the tool selection, to make sure that they have a thriving community. Some of these technologies come and go, and then you end up with solutions that cannot be maintained, improved, and evolved. On the other hand, there are there's, there's always conversations about things like like carbon footprint, what's the operative things that impact the long running of, of a service that need to be taken into, into account. We have concerns in some tools about how do we make sure that the tool that we are implementing is safe, is secure, gets security updates, is not with, a, with an emphasis on personal information, especially if we have a system that tracks that kind of information, how we can be compliant with the standards and uh, at the same time being careful of not just to store the data, but how the data are gonna be kept and maintained and kept safe. Security and environmental impact, sustainability, licensing, these are all dimensions that compose how we choose a solution. And of course, there are some local contexts that may favor a technology uh, instead of another because as we move forward with projects we, uh, we engage with the local technical community, we want to we wanna make sure that we are not imposing a technology that cannot be sustained locally. Great. Thanks, Fernando. And Annie, Fernando started to talk a little bit about personally identifiable data. We also deal with, in some cases, th data that might be commercially sensitive. You know, as we think about not just the technology itself, but the data that's being fed through that, what are some of the ways in which DG is thinking about data governance and, and really making sure that we're staying a step ahead, not just of meeting minimal standards, but of setting good practice? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because it's not just about, like you said, you know, compliance and being humble about the fact that digital is, is not a silver bullet, but I think we're also, like you said, keenly aware of, of the major risk factors of misuse of, of data and technology. We're seeing a lot of examples of that already, you know, everything from the Cambridge Analytica scandal to using biometric data to isolate certain populations, internet shutdowns to control dissent, and all kinds of misuses and, and unethical uses of what should be useful technology. So I think you know, one of the things that we do at DG is because of our experience working directly with users of this, you know, whatever software tool we're building or whatever kind of policy, data policy that we're advising on, I think we have a lot of visibility into some of these real world risks and, and what the real world consequences might be. I think we also do a really good job at DG of convening the right stakeholders and asking the right questions in these kind of 
convening and, and community meetings. Fernando already touched on community as being important um, for just identifying any sort of innovation tool that we want to use. But for us at DG, you know, community is also really important when it comes to rolling out a tool or developing a policy recommendation or, or anything of that matter. So we really try and focus on the downstream impacts, whether those are good or bad. And I don't think that we shy away from them. So we've talked a lot about the risks and about kind of foundational principles, you know, that lead to more sustainable tools. But what are some of the things that you're really excited about that we're either currently doing or that you hope that we'll do under the new strategy? Annie? Yeah, I'm really excited to see how we can kind of marry our more bottom-up experience with with digital transformation work with some of the more top-down frameworks that are coming out. There's a growing body of evidence and and literature in the development community about what digital transformation is and how to do it and how to be successful at it. And I think that there's a lot of assumptions kind of built into those about things being one-size-fits-all and context and things. So I'm really excited to see DG in this space as more of a grassroots digital transformation group or or taking more bottom-up approaches and seeing how we can kind of marry that with some of the kind of national level guidance that comes out from, you know, the UN or World Bank or other development and private sector organizations that contribute to this body of evidence on digital transformation and what works. Great. Thanks, Annie. Fernando, same question to you. What are you excited about in the new strategy and be as geeky as you like? <laughs> so for, for a long time, we've been uh, fighting to get good data, a lot of them. But now I think that with the promise of a couple of technologies like AI, machine learning and deep learning, there are, there's a lot of opportunities there. When I started looking at this about seven years ago, you needed to work directly with IBM to access their Watson systems so you could try to do something in AI. Now the libraries are widely open. There are, some, there are many projects that provide a good level of AI, an advanced level of AI, that I thought that it was not possible without a lot of resources. The thing that excites me the most is how we're going to apply these tools to bring further that mission of, okay, let's do something with data. Let's bring it further. I think that the potential there is pretty big. The way that the tools have been standardized and open sourced in many cases or the availability of the big players on the AI sector to facilitate using their techniques, their tools, their APIs. So you can, without a big investment, get a lot of insights over all that data that we've been collecting for many years. But now I had a follow-up question for, for Annie in this context of the tools that we are developing. How do you think that DG keeps the user at the center between all of these things happening in technology policy, etc.? Yeah, that's a really important question. I think part of it goes back to just kind of our understanding and our perspective on the ground, right? So, you know, we're really working with data users, end users, but also the people that are impacted by these data systems. So if you have, for example, a health information system project or a health sector digital transformation project, are you working not only with the users of that tool, supposedly nurses, doctors, 
doctors, things like that. But are you actually also going into the community and understanding what the major health priorities are there and making sure that the data and the, and the system that you're building also reflects those values as well. So I think there's a lot of things that DG does. Again, you know, everything from convening the stakeholders to just kind of staying abreast of these real world issues by continuing to talk with people. I think our comm methodology does a really good job of casting this wide net when we do these assessments on anything from what kind of technology do you need to use to what is the organizational or national data strategy in a given country. You know, we apply the same methodology that allows us to cast a really wide net and see things from, you know, a really detailed lens that really highlights, again, not just the end users, but people that are affected by these systems as well. But I'd like to pose this question back to you as well, Fernando and Josh, and, and see what other things DG does to make sure that we keep the user at the center. I, I can speak from the, from the purely implementation aspect of this. One of the results of our methodology is that we engage with the stakeholders pretty often. It's key to understanding how a system is going to be used. And in some instances, that takes the shape of, you know, having people see how people are using our tools. But sometimes it also includes making large printouts so people that use these systems can go to villages or where, wherever the data is going to be used and explain how some of these things work, what the data means. and. In general, the users in our projects are up front and center. I think that our, our projects thrive when the users are engaged. And that can take many, many shapes because people have limited amounts of time and so on, but we try to make it as efficient as possible to engage with the, with the teams that are gonna be using our, our tools in the day-to-day, -day, either for making decisions or doing the data collection. The one thing I'd add is I think all of our methods and our team really understand that tools for data are really used to drive decisions and that decisions occur within a specific political, procedural, regulatory, and technical context. And whether the decision maker that the tool is designed to inform is a minister making budget allocations or whether it's a smallholder farmer deciding how much money to spend on improved seed varietals versus fertilizer, other inputs, versus keeping in savings and moving forward with what they have. In either case, our goal is really to tune the data, the information, and the presentation of it in a way that's going to be ultimately useful to the person that we're trying to influence. And so I think that leads to a very unique set of assessment tools, methods, design processes, that it's not just about who is the person that you're sitting across the table from, I think very much, Annie, to your point, it's about who are all the people that aren't in that room who need to either use or benefit from the system and how can we best capture and reflect their perspectives in a way that's kind of authentic and meaningful to their experiences. Fernando, earlier you talked a little bit in the context of, of tool selection about kind of local development communities and sustainability. You've been at this for, for a long time now. What changes have you seen in kind of the global talent pool and composition, and, and how is that impacting the way that we're thinking about local partnerships as well as long-term sustainability and handover of tools? In general, there seems to be a polarization over uh, which platforms have been successful and easier to maintain or easier to connect to local talent. The evolution that I've seen is that it used to be very spread. At one point, 
a few years ago, there was a new open source solution for each possible problem. But eventually, most the communities were the ones that made a solution thrive or not. Especially one of the one of the biggest changes have been how open source has been embraced by the private sector, the civil society, etc. For um, in, in replacement of things that you could only pay before, now moving into something that it's way more sustainable. And at the same time, it follows a principle of transparency that private companies or proprietary systems were not open to half and now they are forced because imagine any system that it's currently managing your internal data you want to make sure that what is happening with the data that you're moving from one point to another point and in the case of open source the code is fully auditable and you have many many eyes especially over key projects that change substantial parts of your of your frameworks or the or, or of the tool that you've developed that brings a, a new set of problems of course but at least you'll have now the transparency and the tools the organizations can fi fix those uh, problems themselves before it used to be a more involved process the clear example is the security updates when something happens if you are using a proprietary solution you need to wait for the cycle the release cycle of that company to to fix something but that could be a, a significant security issue for you Currently, with favoring open source tools, you can either provide a small fix for this particular problem and contribute to the community that fix so, so somebody else can use it. And I, I believe that's key on most of the projects that we work on and that we're going to be working on. Just following up on that, in recent years, we've supported local developers in Indonesia in building out you know, tools and open contracting. We've seen the government of Nepal take our aid management platform open source tool and, and convert it into their own new adaptation of that system. We've worked closely with the government of Ethiopia in strengthening the takeover of their aid management platform by a local team of developers within the ministry. How do you see this localization of talent also shifting the way that we can think about, you know, how we deploy technology and how we ultimately hand it over for local ownership? The main change or, or the larger impact on, on how we do things is how thorough we need to be when we document and hand over things. I've participated of many of those projects that, that you mentioned, and I will add that I was personally involved in handing over the ODA data tool for Mozambique, where we were able to train two people to support it. And this was in 2010. And as of yesterday, the site is still running, is still being maintained by the same team. The tool is a bit dated, but it's still working and it doesn't need to be upgraded until until the, the needs change. I believe that what, what is happening now is that the that pool of talent is bigger now. It's still a challenge to to find and, and make sure that you are assessing the right set of skills, which is something that we try to identify early on. And what has worked in most of those projects that you mentioned is just be able to get the local team as embedded as possible in our day-to-day -day processes. We don't have a perfect process, but we do have a process that has worked for us and we bring this to our, our development, to the local team, so they can take it, adapt it, and trim it as, as they want to make sure that it fits their context. We have ours, we offer it, and we work with them to improve it so it fits their better in a way that uh, we can hand over projects and feel a bit of pride 
when we see that something that we built has something built on top of it and it's still used. Perfect. Thanks. So we've seen a recent resurgence in interest in digital transformation. And Annie, why do you think that is? And, and what do you think is different that's really kind of brought it in vogue again? Yeah, honestly, I think a lot of it has to do with the pandemic. I think it made a lot of government institutions in particular, who I think have traditionally been the most resistant or hesitant to go digital. I think it made a lot of government institutions realize how important that is, especially in a pandemic situation where everyone's working from home and those digital tools are really essential to keep government services running. So for example, if you want to have a digital payment systems and e-government tools, you can't just go halfway on a, on a digital payment tool, right? Like you need to be able to verify digital identities. You need online digital banking. You need all these other things that are not going to be solved with some sort of one-off technology tool. And so I think it's brought a really great example of how digital transformation can't just keep going on this tool-by-tool basis. These tools need to talk to each other. There needs to be a comprehensive strategy. We need to be explicit about how this system interacts with this system. And we need to keep the government running and, and keep public services delivered to, to citizens. I think the other thing is that there's been expanded internet access, especially mobile phone access has, has really, really expanded and, and taken off. So the amount of access that people have to digital technologies has really increased as well. And uh, I think it's high time that government institutions institutions catch up on that and start to um, streamline their processes and move towards more more digital e-government services. You know, in a lot of ways, digital transformation, when you think about it, it is really all-encompassing. It is quite a wide scope. It touches on, you know, policy and it's often involves writing new acts and laws and legislation. It involves creating new government bodies to oversee things. It involves a whole plethora of things that before the pandemic was just a little bit too ambitious to take on all at once. I think that COVID really kind of accelerated the need to get over the fear of trying to tackle this very ambitious goal, unfortunately through necessity, but it is, I think, a a really great opportunity. And I think that's why it's really come back into the forefront of the conversation on development um, because of just the, the absolute need to go digital. And I second that it's clearly that, that the pandemic pushed forward a lot of things. But I also add that some technologies have reached maturity and accessibility. You were asking, Josh, about how things have evolved. And one of the keys are how cloud computing has become the standard in the industry. When we used to uh, deploy a rate management platform in different countries, we usually came to the country with the server, with the routers, with the cables, with everything. And then we needed to figure out how to make sure that it has power, make sure that it's maintained and so on. All of that has been simplified and it, it it takes some time for everybody to be involved and, I, and it's understandable how it used to give a clear sense of ownership over the applications when you have the actual hardware that the things are running but the value proposition of cloud computing is so good because then you can delegate maintenance of servers to people that have millions of servers and not you that you're you're trying to it, it makes everything more efficient while at the same time improving all the service levels agree and that 
composed by the fact that the cloud computing industry is providing access to things that were unthinkable before, such as machine learning analysis, or in general, everything related to analytics, it's, it's getting simpler and more powerful. And as society gets more digitized, it's, uh, we only have more data. So the problem is, is, is only getting more complicated and getting this cloud computing, internet of things, big data, and all, all the promise of digital AI. I think that it's, it's pushing this digital transformation further. I've read it described in the past as a wave of technology, but now I hear it that it's it being described as tsunami, that it's impossible to stop. It's going to change and it is changing the way all organizations do things because the value proposition is just great so far. So, Fernando, I remember a decade ago seeing maps of all the new subterranean fiber networks that were being deployed and, and predictions about a kind of rapidly closing digital divide and getting you know more and more of the world onto the Internet. In reality, I think progress has been a lot slower than expected and a lot more Internet access is, is still mobile. And, and even at that, data costs remain quite high in many of the countries where we work. How does that impact the way we think about selecting and deploying technologies? It's, it's very important. Again, it's connected to engaging with the users. Like you said, it's, it has gotten better. It used to be, it was, it was very hard to make solutions that could work for all, for all those cases. But although the th things have gotten better, engaging early with the context has always helped us understand how we can, you can make a very quick, slick UI. But the problem is that if that requires gigabit connection, it's not good. So we try to optimize for the context that we work on. There are many, many techniques and many resources that we use. For instance, we are uh, trying to embrace in, in all our applications some sort of offline access, which has also evolved in the ways that the tools, that the frameworks provide this, because it is a need and it's not just a, a need of the countries that don't have great connections to the great interconnected system of the of the internet, but also rural parts of, of many, many countries have this issue and we need to optimize for everyone. And Annie, I mean, we see continued digital divides by gender, urban and rural, socioeconomic status. What do you see as Development Gateway's role in contributing to kind of a policy and a strategic dialogue that helps to bridge those in the years ahead? I think our role is, is really just to make sure that digital divide is not something that's just kind of accepted and then swept under the rug. I think that digital divide is very much a concern at our organization. I think that we place an emphasis on understanding how digital impacts or doesn't impact women and children or disadvantaged groups um, and other marginalized communities. It's really important for DG to continue to engage with those communities as we do in our kind of assessment and, and policy building processes and to also make sure that those voices are amplified, especially in our processes and whether that's in communications with our clients and partners or in our reports, other works that we publish, and also at, of course, very important stakeholder convenings and, and decision-making meetings where we make sure that those voices, if they can't be present, they are documented and amplified. And I think that we play a really important role in making sure 
as technology providers and also advisors and and researchers and making sure that those considerations are always at the forefront and never ignored or taken for granted. Josh, how do you see the future of digital transformation and how it, it impacts our, our space? Yeah, I mean, I think as, as you both have highlighted, it's, it's kind of become omnipresent. It's not a question of will digital impact a certain sector, a certain country, a certain economy. It's a question of how and what will be some of the kind of mitigating factors that make that either a successful or, or a dangerous impact. So, you know, we see in some countries that it's really kind of fueling authoritarianism and providing new tools for surveillance and for monitoring of communities. In other countries, it's driving access to public services or, you know, encouraging greater voter uptake or voter turnout or other things that are positive and desirable. And I think to some extent, it becomes what we make of it. Digital is a, a tool or a set of tools that get applied within kind of existing cultural and political contexts. And I think one of the things where DG is at our best is in understanding those contexts and understanding the incentives that people face in understanding some of the limitations, whether that's capacity, whether that's finances and resources, whether that's policy space and identifying the best path then to be able to move programming forward and to be able to move digital transformation. I think the, the biggest things that are needed where we can contribute is supporting strong standards and models for governance and particularly for participatory models of governance that aren't just top down. So some of those bottom up approaches that Annie was mentioning before. And then I think just really having a, a pragmatic practitioner lens to what we do. I think DG, we're also at our best when we're more than just the sum of our projects. And I think one of the things that we've done quite successfully in the data for development space, and I think less so to this point, but I think in this new strategy it will be a key focus, is taking the lessons that we learned from all of our projects, from working closely with communities, with governments, both national and subnational, and bringing that to some of these international policy dialogues and to some of the decision making that development agencies are taking and allocating, you know, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars in programming to make sure that what's being put forward from a policy perspective, from an investment perspective, and from a programming perspective, is respectful of rights, is appropriate for context, and ultimately really delivers value for the people that it's meant to serve. We've seen many bad solutions and or solutions that that are uh, hard to to understand what their their impact is and so on. How do you think that we can pierce through all of this into making sure that that our that we are aligned? To the to the to the good solutions sector of technology, and I'm talking specifically about technology because it's what what I do. Yeah, I think there are two or three ways. I think the first is you know really taking a kind of strict ethical and learning based approach to what we do. We talked earlier about experimentation and how that has to go hand in hand with responsibility. You know, really understanding user needs, assessing technologies through the lens of those user needs, and taking a participatory approach to the design, but then also the rollout and the sustainability of tools, I think is is really crucial. And I think sometimes you'll find that the architecture or the solution that you started with isn't the right one. And we certainly scrapped things and started fresh based on feedback we've gotten from the community. I think the second thing that's equally important for us is to work our way further upstream. 
A lot of times I think technology projects fail before they're procured. They fail because, you know, a funder has come in, they've done a scoping study, maybe they've contracted that out to an organization that doesn't have a really clear grasp of the context. And they go about kind of putting out technology that isn't really fit for purpose and, and a match for the context and for user needs. And I think one of the things that's unique in this new strategy is we explicitly say that we will play both the practitioner and the implementer role and an advisory role. I think having our advisory work informed by our practitioner work and having our practitioner work informed by understanding what is the upcoming cutting edge and is it a good cutting edge or is it something that we need to, to try to mitigate against? And so I think being able to engage in the very early stages of, of projects before they even start, as well as you know in digital strategies of agencies, of governments and thinking through what are the technologies that they're gonna pick and helping them to pick ones that are, that are kind of winners that are well aligned with the needs that exist, and then also being there to implement and making sure that we do that really rigorously, methodically, and you know, as I said, in a, in a really kind of participatory and user-centered manner. Just to build off what you said, one way we kind of pierce through these failed technology projects, and I think one really interesting thing about kind of reframing our thinking ongoing digital uh, under this umbrella of, of digital transformation is just kind of the recognition that digital technologies don't exist in a vacuum. There's all kinds of political, managerial, you know, sometimes financial incentives to go digital or build a digital tool. And I think in the past, there's been a lot of misunderstanding that digital is good no matter what. And just doing digital for digital's sake and, and building any sort of digital tool is going to be better than not having a digital tool. And I think we're starting to realize that that's not exactly true. And a digital tool really needs to be able to work within a, a, a larger context with other tools and with other purposes in order for it to really uh, reach its maximum potential. And I think that we've been humble about that on our own. Maybe the digital tool isn't going to solve all your problems. And what you really need is a comprehensive policy framework or, or something like that. So I think this shift towards thinking about digital transformation in more of this umbrella term is going to help us target these kind of non-technical issues that are often the reason why digital technologies fail. Big plus to that. So, Josh, what gets you excited about the new technology, digital transformation, and so on? I think it's just exciting to be able to do what we've been doing at a greater scale and to really have kind of a clear avenue to informing the policy I mean, I've always just been really excited seeing the connection between our programmatic team and our technical team. I think working those two sides of, of DG together to develop and deliver solutions. And so knowing that there's greater and greater demand for that and knowing that I think there's a real need in the development ICT for D or digital transformation space for organizations that can bring kind of really rigorous software development approaches together with really strong and thoughtful and participatory data governance approaches together with clear change management, understanding of the context and really driving toward user needs. I just think it's a, it's a really perfect fit for who DG has been for a very long time and that there are more and more exciting ways for us to be able to apply what we do well. Annie, Fernando, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. You too. Big thanks to everyone who listened to this series focused on our new strategic plan. We'll be back soon with another season of Data for What? about data governance hosted by Beverly Hatcher Mbu. See you then.
special thanks to all our guests. This podcast was produced by Lindsay Fincham with support from Annalisa Goodman. Our theme music was created by Mark Hatcher. Learn more about Development Gateway on our website, developmentgateway.org, or through our social media.